Please be seated. This morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 9. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9. Just kidding. Mark chapter 9. And as you're turning there, um, I want you to think of something amazing that you've seen. What's the, the most splendorous, most glorious, coolest thing you've ever seen? Maybe it was a shooting star. Uh, maybe it was an eagle swooping over your car. I can remember once driving down and a bald eagle just came right down over the car and I couldn't believe that just happened and I wanted to hit replay and do it again. Maybe a few months back when we had the eclipse, you, you made the drive to get into totality and you got to put on the glasses and ooh and ah with the crowds. What was it? It's something amazing. Well, here we're going to read a story of three of Jesus' disciples seeing something that would knock any of that out of the park. Mark chapter 9, we'll start at verse 1. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust it, and we pray that you would reveal yourself to us through it by your Spirit. We need your help for that, so we pray, give us your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts that believe, and lives that live in the light of your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as you can tell by looking at me, I'm really into working out. Um, <laughs> total fitness buff. Uh, but in, in college I was, in college I was, and I went to a small school in Georgia, Covenant College, where our very own Kara Smoley will go and go, go Scots. Um, and Covenant has a beautiful recreation center now, but when I was there, it was, um, the weight room was in a basement under the gym. And uh, my friend, uh, my roommate, Dan and I were working out, and uh, you know, Batman never skips leg day, so we weren't going to skip leg day. And so we went into the leg room, which was a, a glorified broom closet. Uh, at the time, and we walk in, and there's uh, a little girl in there. I was thinking, you know, 11, 12 years old, uh, working out on the machines, and I was a little concerned. I'm like, this doesn't seem right. I'm just like, hey, you know, hey, are you okay? 
you know, can I give you any tips on how to you, be safe? Um, and, you know, she's like, I'm fine, thanks, you know, and we start, you know, doing our leg presses or whatever, and then I'm like, so, uh, you know, so do your parents work here, or I'm just trying to figure out why she's here, you know, and she's like, no, no do, your, do your parents work here? You know, I'm like, no, uh, why would you think that? Like, I'm a grown man, <laughs> um, you're a kid. And, uh, you know, we, we finish up the workout, and we're walking back to the dorm, and, and my friend Dan, he's like, what? was that about? Like, what were you doing? And I was like, well, no, there was a kid in the weight room, and I was a little worried about her, and he's like, man, she goes to school here. Like, I have a class with her. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, like, she was small, you know? She had a ponytail. I don't know. I, I thought she was young. And then about a week later, uh, Dan comes back into the room. He's like, Ben, remember the little girl in the weight room? Turns out her name's Katie Brown, and at the time, she was the reigning X Games champion at women's rock climbing. Um, <laughs> She, uh, she won that several times. She was uh, the champion of the Climbing World Cup. Apparently, there's a World Cup for climbing. She won it, um, and she was the first woman to free climb the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, just a few years ago, Citibank, which was mentioned earlier today, you know, uh, did a commercial featuring her. So you can look it up on YouTube. Just do, like, Citibank rock climbing commercial. Um, actually, just do it now on your phones real quick. I'll wait. It's like 30, <laughs> it's like 30 seconds. No, watch it when you get home. It, but it's, it, there were, 60 Minutes actually did a special, a segment on this commercial because people were writing in because it made them feel nauseous watching it. They were dizzy and they were concerned for the safety of the woman featured. They're like, did you drop her from a helicopter? But no, she actually made the climb. Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. Um, she was essentially, at the time that I was speaking to her, was considered the Michael Jordan of women's climbing. Um, so I mansplained a leg press to a globally renowned <laughs> professional athlete um, and uh, so um, and something much like that is happening here in this passage where you the disciples have known Jesus for a while we've had eight chapters worth of material where they've spent time with him and these are the three closest and they think they have this idea of who Jesus is and then they learn so much more just utterly blows their mind they had no idea who they were dealing with and who they were talking to because his glory is revealed. They get a glimpse of his glory. And his glory is revealed in so many ways here. First, on the mountaintop. He takes them to a high mountain. And throughout the Old Testament, it's frequent for God to reveal himself on top of the mountain. And that's what he did for Moses and Elijah in Exodus 24 and 1 Kings 19. And then, of course, the appearance of Moses and Elijah back from the dead, standing there conversing with Jesus. It's noteworthy that this event happened six days after Jesus promised that some of them would see the kingdom of God revealed in power. And for Moses, in Exodus 24, God has promised that he will show himself to Moses. And six days later, he takes him to the top of the mountain and reveals himself. And then, of course, Moses and Elijah, they're individual historic people but they are also fraught with symbolism. Moses, of course, the author of the first five books of the Bible, often called the Law or the Torah, and Elijah being the quintessential prophet of the Old Testament. And so often the, the entire Old Testament can be referred to as the Law and the Prophets. And here the Law and the Prophet are standing beside Jesus as he is radiating his glory, showing that he has come to fulfill what they were pointing to and to even supersede them. And then, of course, the cloud 
All through the Old Testament, God would reveal himself in this manifestation of a pillar of smoke or a pillar of cloud, and his presence is made known. And then the voice comes in Deuteronomy 18. Moses had written this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And then the voice comes from the cloud. This is my son. Listen to him. The voice is confirming Jesus' unique status as the son of God and the prophet that was promised. And then, of course, his clothes. Uh, Mark says that they were, they were white like no one could bleach it. And then the, the parallel accounts in the other gospels say that he was actually emanating light. He's glowing in front of them. It's a reference, most likely, as Jesus immediately refers to himself as the Son of Man must rise from the dead to the prophecy in Daniel, where one like a Son of Man is coming on the clouds, and he's this God-like person, and yet also a man, and it says that his clothing was as white as snow, this glowing figure. And in this passage, neither Moses nor Elijah shine, but Jesus does. And Moses, when he encountered God on the mountain, he had to shield his face from the people of Israel because it was radiating this reflective glory of God like when you get a sunburn because it's coming off the snow. Yet Jesus himself is emanating glory and light. So how do we respond to that glimpse of glory? How do we respond when we see God in his splendor? Well, first, how does Peter respond? Let's look, look back at the text, verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And in one sense, this is a not crazy response. In the Old Testament, it was common to build a monument after an encounter with God, to pitch a little tabernacle uh, in honor of his appearance. But I love this in verse 6. It goes on, and we know from church history that Peter is the, is the primary source for Mark. Peter taught Mark his gospel, that they shared this time together, and Mark was containing uh, the personal accounts of Peter throughout Mark. In verse 6 it says, For he did not know what to say. <laughs> he was terrified, right? He, Peter, he, you can picture Peter telling Mark, I didn't, I didn't know. I was like, hey, let's tents. How about some tents? You know, <laughs> I, does your mom work here? You know, like, what, is, what, what do I say? I don't, I don't know what to do. And there's this running theme throughout the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Mark, of the disciples just not understanding even at the end of this passage, they're confused. They're wondering, what does this mean? Uh, acting irrationally and foolishly again and again that they just don't get it. And let that both challenge you and encourage you. That should challenge and encourage us. First, it, let it challenge you. If, if you're a well-equipped Christian and you, you know your Bible and you've got your plan and you kind of have the world on a string in your faith, um, and Jesus sort of fits into that, and you've kind of got this game figured out. Um, this is a call to wake up. Maybe we don't really see it. Maybe we don't really get it. Maybe we think that building a tabernacle makes sense, but maybe it's something much greater that God is calling us to. Maybe we don't have it all figured out. Maybe we need to really see what God's glory actually is. But also let it encourage you. Like a lot of you are like, I'm not the person that's got it figured out. In fact, I, I think I know what I'm supposed to do, but I just can't get my act together. I'm 39 and I can't do it. 
Uh, like my, my marriage is struggling, my, my kids, how do I raise them? What am I supposed to do? I can't figure this out. What am I gonna do when I graduate? Like I've got a plan, sort of, but like what do I, how do I live like that? How do I live in a new world? What do we do in the new technology age as people? How do we make friends when we're all staring at our phones all the time? I, I can't figure this out. Or even in your prayer life, you might identify very closely with Peter where we just sort of blurt things out as we pray, especially those awkward times when we pray in groups and it's your turn and you haven't really thought about it. And for I did not know what I was saying, give us a hedge of protection around us. I, I thought that was what I was supposed to say, but I didn't know what it meant. You know, like it, um, that's us. Let that encourage you. The disciples were no different. They were blundering and confused and afraid and didn't know what to say right there in front of Jesus. So how do we learn how to respond? How do we respond to God's glory, to Jesus manifesting it? Well, part of how we learn is by seeing what Jesus is going to do with that glory. What is this glowing man going to do? Verse 9, they were coming down the mountain. And he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. This is a good question for them at this point. The Old Testament had predicted that Elijah would return before the Messiah. The scribes had been interpreting that. And they're like, hey, we just saw Elijah. Was that, was that it? Was that the moment? And they're on the right track. Jesus says, yes, Elijah does come first. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So they're coming back down the mountain, just like Moses and Elijah had to do in the Old Testament. And coming back down the mountain, Jesus is going back into the fray, back into conflict, back into suffering. And he reminds them what he had already told them in the chapter previously, that the Son of Man must suffer, the Son of Man must die, and the Son of Man must rise again. And he answers their Elijah question, and he's referring to John the Baptist. He says, yes, Elijah did come, a prophet. John the Baptist, who like Elijah preached repentance and turning around. Like Elijah, he prepared the way for the Lord. And like Elijah, he was persecuted. And like the Son of Man will be, he was killed. If you remember the story of John the Baptist having his head delivered on a platter. And this time they are perplexed still. Questioning what these things might mean. But now they have become sobered. A paragraph earlier, Jesus tells them essentially the same thing. And what does Peter do? He pulls him aside and he says, no, no, no. He says, Peter rebuked Jesus and said, you're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. And Jesus famously said, get behind me, Satan. And Peter doesn't do it this time. Because he just saw his glory manifested. And he didn't know what to say, but he knew what not to say. And the voice said, listen to him. And Peter has begun to listen in a new way. I want to ask you again, as I asked you before reading the text, what's the most amazing thing you ever saw? A spectacle you wish you could see again. 
And if you're a believer here today, I would imagine most of us, man, I think I would literally give my right arm to have been on this mountain with those three. How amazing would that be? To see Jesus light up in front of us with Peter, James, and John. As we long to see glorious things, we long to see beauty, we long to see glory on display, we crave it instinctively. And Peter, James, and John got that front row seat to get a glimpse just for a moment until the cloud disappeared and everything went back to normal. And Peter was never perfect. He's going to continue to make blunders throughout the book of Mark and then in the book of Acts. And then Paul talks about having to confront Peter about being a racist <laughs> later in his life when I mean, it's bad stuff. He doesn't ever get perfect, but he does continue to grow. He's in that process. And I want to read to you what Peter says about this experience later on. It's in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, and he's just told his, his readers that he knows he's going to die soon, towards the end of his life. And we know from church history that Peter was murdered. He was persecuted and put to death. And many of the accounts say that he was crucified, um, but that when they were going to crucify him, Peter said that he wasn't worthy to die the same way as his Lord. And so they said, fine, we'll do it upside down. And he was crucified upside down. And he doesn't know exactly what's coming, but he knows he's going to die soon, and he writes this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't a myth. We didn't make this up. We were there. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. I was there. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. I was there. It's in Mark 9. I saw it. And we have something more sure. I want to know what that is. You were on the mountain, you said we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever pronounced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We use this to proof text that the Bible is inspired by God, and that's right. But do you hear what he's saying? I was on the mountain. You want to see that glory? It's here. It's right here. Now, some tra the, the Greek's a little ambiguous. He might be saying that this is more sure because of what we've seen after Jesus has come. Or it could actually mean we, this is actually better than being on that mountain. Either way, his application is the same. The same one that was given to him by that voice. Listen to him. This is that glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I, I'm paid to study the Bible and talk about it and teach it. And I believe it, but I don't believe that the Bible is what the Bible really says it is. Not in that way. That I could open these pages and whew, the Mount of Transfiguration opened up before my eyes as the Spirit of God who, who authored this word speaks it into our lives and brings about transfiguration and transformation in our own hearts and lives. The sun rises in our hearts, he says. And the day will dawn. Listen to him. And Peter learned to listen. 
Listen to him, he says. Pay attention. I love his emphasis by understatement. The prophetic word of God to which you would do well to pay attention to. It was hard for him to learn that lesson, but he did. And it led him right into suffering, and it very well may for you and me. But it's the suffering that Jesus came down that mountain to enter into before us. And now he calls us to step into that reality that he's given us by his light and live in the love that he offers us. Let's pray that that would be so. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are glorious, that you are loving, that you are kind, that you are reliable, that we can trust you and that we can trust your word and that you have given yourself for us as we celebrate that even now at your table. We ask that you would be with us. In Christ's name, amen.